Hey there, biomechanists and lovers of biomechanics and our moms. Welcome to the fifth episode of Biomechanics on Our Minds, or BOOM. Welcome to BOOM. We have biomechanics on our minds. Boom. 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 I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And with us today is a special guest. Uh, Ross Wilkinson is here all the way from Australia. He is a PhD candidate at the Center for Sensory Motor Performance at the University of Queensland. And Ross is coming to the United States to do research at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, But he made a stop in California to come visit us at Stanford. And we're really excited to have you here with us. Hey, Ross. Yay. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm glad I got to meet you before you got too famous. You know. <laughs> it was hard yeah. to book an appointment on Boom. But you, too, yeah. can come and be a guest on Boom if you want. If you write to us like Ross did yeah. and reach out, we'll Pretty much all you have to do yeah, is say that you think we're cool, and then we'll invite you. Then you're in. <laughs> you can come all the way from Australia. We did not fund him. <laughs> yeah, no. Noted. And they're really friendly, so don't be scared. <laughs> but they will make you present at their lab meeting. It's true. And we are going to start off with a bit of boom. 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 So an article in Discover magazine talks about an Egyptologist that believes that we have found the first known prosthetics. Artificial toes were found on mummies, and while and they initially were believed to be ornamental, because who doesn't want um, ornamental false toes, <laughs> uh, Jackie Finch, who is this Egyptologist at the University of Manchester, believes that because they showed signs of wear that they could actually be prosthetics. Wait, what is an Egyptologist? Can you just tell me? Like, what Does that just mean you study Egypt? Ologist... Ology, I think, is the study of. So this leads me to believe that Egyptology would be the study of Egypt. Wow, who knew? Um, yeah, which would be pretty interesting. Um, but she thinks that because they were wearing that they actually could have been prosthetics. And so to test this hypothesis, she created two different models of the artificial toes from each mummy. So there's two different mummies. So she made both of these artificial toes. And then she had volunteers walk with these prosthetics toes on an electronic mat and then capture the movement with cameras. And she found that the volunteers actually did use the toes to push off. And further, one of the types of toes was better with mobility while the other toe was more comfortable. So previously, the oldest known artificial limb was a bronze artificial leg worn by an ancient Roman in 300 BC, which doesn't sound too functional. But this discovery would push back the development of artificial limbs a few hundred years further and then would credit the Egyptians instead. Speaking of toes, you know what has the most adorable little toes? Babies. Yes. Actually, for the first time, researchers have calculated the forces generated by the movements of human fetuses or babies and the effects that these forces have on the developing bones and muscles. So when a fetus kicks and wriggles, its movements place stress and strain on its skeleton. So it's been difficult to measure this behavior in the past. After all, it's hard to put force plates inside the womb. But Dr. Neve Nolan at Imperial College London and her colleagues tracked the movements of 20 to 35-week-old fetuses using an advanced type of magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI. 
And with this, they were able to quantify fetal kick and muscle forces and apply them to 3D geometries of the fetal skeleton to test the hypothesis that stress and strain change during development. And they found that kicks ramped up and became more forceful from 20 to 30 weeks. And they think that this increasing pressure on the leg bones and joints probably helps the fetus grow. And we know that outside the womb, our bones need to be loaded to strengthen and grow properly. Like, you know, the old saying, if you don't use it, you lose it. This research is important because it demonstrates a potential relationship between fetal biomechanics and skeletal malformations or defects, and also helps us better understand the uterine biomechanical environment. This could fuel future research in tissue engineering and mechanobiology and help us strengthen fetal musculoskeletal systems even before they exit the womb. Wow, that would be really cool. And I have to say, if you look this up, there's videos of the fetuses in the MRI scans that they had videos of them. And they're quite remarkable, actually, like in a lot of detail, seeing the baby's kick. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, in utero movies, pretty cool. But in reality, you know, it's just baby steps. Oh. <laughs> kind of gives new meaning to the term birthplace of knowledge. Whoa. Oh. Good one, Ross. Go, Ross. Now we have two wow. people with really great... <laughs> <laughs> really cringeworthy puns. Dad taught me well. Yes. <laughs> Who taught you all your jokes, Hannah? Probably SpongeBob. 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 All right. Good. Our interview today is with Professor Mary Rogers. She is Professor Emeritus of the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And she's also the director of the Pilot and Exploratory Studies Corps for the Maryland Claude D. Pepper Older Americans Independence Center at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, which is funded by the National Institute of Aging. And she's also an ISB fellow. Thanks for talking with us, Mary. My pleasure. What did you study in your research at the University of Maryland? My primary research was in the area of wheelchair propulsion biomechanics, analyzing propulsion in 3D in an effort to see if there were ways to reduce the stresses in the joints of the arms so that we could do something to help prevent overuse injuries in, in manual wheelchair users. So that was my main area of study, and that work was funded through the VA for the most part. Okay. What types of tools did you use to look at the propulsions that people are facing when they're using their wheelchair? I had constructed a wheelchair ergometer, basically, that was a, a wheelchair that was mounted on a platform and the wheels were instrumented with sensors so that we could detect the load being applied to the hand rim. And we could also apply resistance in a graded way. And that way I could use sort of a, a model for overuse based on, on fatigue. So when I would have a subject set up in the study, they were propelling in a sort of graded exercise protocol and the I would compare their positions of the wrist, elbow and shoulder before fatigue and then after fatigue. The idea being that the biomechanics they were showing with fatigue 
would mm, probably be the physicians that would be problematic and that would be precursors to joint problems. So, so that was using a 3D motion analysis system that happened to be a Vicon system. Okay. Did you ever work to develop wheelchairs that would help mitigate the problems that you were studying, or did you look at the effect of, of different chairs? No, I was focused on the human side of the equation. Um, there were other places that were doing a lot of work around changing wheelchairs, but I was more focused on what was going on with the, the human side, how they were positioning themselves for propulsion and how that varied from person to person and with and without fatigue. I also was doing uh, EMG measurements, so I was also looking at how the muscles were fatiguing and how they were influencing the joint positions. Okay, and do you still do research in your new position? My position now as emeritus is, is pretty much just in facilitating other people to do their research. I've um, continued to be involved with the Pepper Center here, which my responsibilities with that core are looking around to find young, new researchers who are interested in doing research that has something to do with aging. And we solicit pilots. We get them reviewed and figure out which ones we want to financially support, and then there's a lot of development and mentorship of those people to help them become independent researchers, generally in the area of aging. On the lines of mentorship, who's been an important mentor to you, and what types of characteristics did he or she have that fostered that mentorship? So I am very fortunate in that I've had a number of really wonderful mentors, and I hesitate to name any one person because I'm going to leave somebody else out. <laughs> and I don't want to do that because I'm so appreciative of, of all of the support that I've gotten from so many different people. Certainly the people that were my advisors during my graduate studies were essential mentors in terms of the my development as a researcher. Others were very important mentors as part of other parts of my career, academic career, sort of making headway in the areas of biomechanics, as well as in the area of physical therapy, which is what my original training was. The characteristics, I guess, that are pretty consistent across all of those people that have been mentors, I think someone who is, first of all, willing and able to care <laughs> and spend time and energy and effort to provide mentorship. And that's that's a hard one because everybody is so busy and it takes time because it means you're basically you know, willing to spend some time discussing a real wide variety of different things with someone. Right. And I think people define mentorship in a lot of different ways. So I guess I always felt like a mentor couldn't be just one person person because there are people who have wonderful wisdom to share and advice to share in a whole lot of different areas but some people are more wise in certain areas than others so I, I think it's good to have several people that are caring about what you do <laughs> I think 
some mentor and a really good mentor, I think, is welcoming of the opportunity to interact with somebody who is asking them for advice and willing to listen to it. <laughs> did most of your mentorships just come naturally or did you explicitly ask someone to be your mentor? It depends. In some situations where it's somebody who is really, really busy and there's an opportunity to sort of structure up a regimented type of a ongoing communication, you know, that that's a little bit more formalized way of mentorship. And I don't think I had, I mean, certainly um, as part of graduate, my graduate studies, that was essential in other cases. If I was, when I was first getting into my own grants, you know, and not working on other people's grants. But, but when I was working with other people, being able to have regular communications with those people. Most of the other ones, like, for instance, this is connected with the International Society of Biomechanics. And the early mentorship I had was it's good to get involved with the biomechanics societies. And that was really good advice, and I did that, and I was fortunate to have involvement with a variety of different committees and be able to go into some leadership roles that put me in contact with a variety of people who may not know they gave me mentorship, but they absolutely did, which was just fabulous. I mean, these were people that were not only not in my immediate you know, work unit. There were people from all over the world and being able to bounce some things off of those people and get their perspectives was really a fabulous opportunity. And, you know, all those interactions were very important on so many different levels. One being that as in academics, you have to have support to be able to progress through the academic ranks and doing that committee work and getting to know people who are were more established and had reputations that would be willing to provide some support letters, you know, in the process of going through academic promotions. Yeah, and sometimes it can be a little intimidating to ask someone who is so well-known in the field or so busy to be your mentor. And I was wondering if you had any advice for how to start a, a mentorship like that. I agree completely that it can be very intimidating. And one of the things I like about um, ISP is that it's small enough and sort of student focused enough that the senior people that are involved are people who take mentorship seriously and are very open to being approached. One of the things I have done on occasion when it, when I was really intimidated is that I would ask the person if I could do an informational interview. <laughs> and that was sort of a guise to, first of all, learn more about them and figure out where there might be areas that I could really benefit from their mentorship. And they then would know who I was. And then if I came later and or maybe at the end of the interview, asked if they would open to my asking questions in the future or communicating more that that worked well in in several different cases. And most people, I think, are very happy to talk about themselves <laughs> and, and their journeys and their path. So so that. That seemed like a, a good and they're willing to say, yeah, I'll give you, you know, this much time. 
if they're really busy people. And what were some of the important things that you learned from your mentors? It depends on if you're if you're specifically talking about research or biomechanics or academics or home life. Yeah, that's a good point. I think for a lot of challenges that are maybe a little bit more of a issue in general for for women that are researchers is sort of the whole work-life balance thing. And I think I got very good advice about how to really focus in on the activities that were going to be the most important ones and how to avoid the activities that weren't (laughs) and how to prioritize the family relationships and things like that while you're having all these other time demands. So probably that's some of the best advice that I got. I recently was talking to someone who was saying, we were asking about work-life balance and she was like, you know, it's not this optimal thing that you eventually reach and you're like, okay, now I have it. It's just something that fluctuates and sometimes some days feel better than others, but you find tools that help it generally stay better, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you plan something, (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure any particular day necessarily goes as planned because things come up. So there is it's important to have flexibility and to still sort of maintain the focus that you need to have to get done what needs to get done. Right. And have you had any experiences of poor mentorship and do you have suggestions for how to handle these situations? I guess poor mentorship is just you need advice and guidance from somebody who's not willing to provide that. And in those situations, it just means you have to find some other way to get the information. And I guess I would, I would say perhaps in my situation, the biggest example of that that I had was when I was appointed um, department chair and I had hoped to have more interaction with the person that was leaving that position and they were not at all interested (laughs) in that. Um, So I, I reached out to other department chairs across the country and I'm fortunate again that I knew a lot of those people. They knew me well enough that they were okay with my picking up the phone and saying, Oh my gosh, this is what's going on. <laughs> what have you had this happen? What did you do? Which was really helpful. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine that it's it's really important again then to make sure that you're building community when you go to conferences and and when you're talking to other people in the field or even outside of the field because you never know when you might then turn for mentorship either way. Mm-hmm. What do you typically look for in a good mentor or how could you tell when it would be a good relationship Mm -hmm. well um i guess as i said sort of earlier i think first of all it has to be somebody who's willing to care and you have to meet with them a few times before you figure out (laughs) whether or not it's somebody who who's going to care somebody who is a, a good teacher good communicator is really helpful because means that it's going to be a little bit easier to understand their advice when they're giving advice. 
being you know accessible is important i guess a lot of times if there is a particular area where you need specific stuff then that person being knowledgeable and able to give you advice about that specific area would be another way that you would figure out who would be best and i guess i would reiterate that i would never try to have one person who is providing all the advice i need or support that I need or caring that I need. Having community and having sort of a mentor team or something like that, I think makes a lot more sense. Go to one person for one thing and somebody else for another aspect. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense from both perspectives because it would be difficult if you just had one person to go to for everything and for that person, it might be a little stressful sometimes to try to be your mentor in all aspects of your life. So what are some ways that you continue to foster good mentorship over time? Certainly for the mentor, having the ability and willingness to work with another person and knowing how to, what sort of what level of communication and contact they they need and how they communicate best. Because I think People have a lot of different ways that they communicate. And I think that's a, that's key. I'm thinking a lot these days about people who are maybe people that I've been involved with mentorship before and are now in a position for them to be mentoring. And I'm thinking, you know, we don't really provide much help in training people to be mentors, but it's such an incredibly important role that we need people to be playing. Right. We get so focused on getting our own work done. I think it's hard to build in time to remember that other people played a key role in your own development and that it's good to do the same for others. Yeah, it definitely is important to take the time to give back. And I think sometimes that's hard as a student. So I can think of examples of graduate students who have taken the time to mentor undergrads or high school students. And they've mentioned sometimes it's almost more time to do the mentoring than the actual productivity that they're getting from having someone else in the lab that that they're mentoring but I still think it's really important just to have that experience as a mentor and I was talking to someone who said that his experience as a mentor helped him be a better mentee and it helped him really build better relationships and understand the dynamics with his mentors better which I thought was useful. Yeah that's that's very good insight. Are there ways that you feel mentorship is different in the sciences than maybe other fields? I think the basic characteristics of teaching and communicating are, would be pretty much the same no matter what the field is. Uh, I think the difference with the sciences is that there's more of the tips that are related to research, which wouldn't necessarily be part of what you would need in, in, in other areas. So more sort of content-specific types of mentorship. Right. Do you have any examples of what some of those tips might be? To be very specific, when I was relatively early in my development as a researcher, my mentor at the time, he was, I was working on his grant at the time, had been in a study section 
for NIH, and he had been invited to review, and he couldn't go, and so he arranged to have me fill in for him on the study section. And it turns out that that was an incredible experience for me, although it was very intimidating (laughs) at the time and gave me a lot of insights into the whole grant review process, and especially NIH and how that works and all that kind of stuff. He provided that opportunity, and that was an incredible act of mentorship that, that I was really grateful for. Other tips, as I mentioned before, just sort of recognizing and understanding which activities are the ones that are going to really be important for what your career goal is and what what things are not so much. And that might be especially critical in academics when you're looking at um, institutional service. There's There are ways to provide service that are extremely time-consuming, and there's ways to provide service that are much less so. And you can pick and choose and be careful about what kind of commitments you're making in the service area. So that was also helpful to me as well. That's a good idea. It's hard sometimes, I think, to say no to opportunities, especially in service. I feel like I always want to take advantage of opportunities to help, but sometimes you just don't have time and, and you have to say no. And I think that's something that can be difficult. And it's nice to have somebody to talk to about that. Long ago, and I actually can't even remember who it was that first said it to me, said, you know, you, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I had something similar recently, actually. She said you can, but she said you can do everything, just not at the same time. Ah, I like that one, too. <laughs> yeah. And she said that she's kind of been going by decades and focusing on, like, what it, what do I want to be this decade? And I just, I thought that was really interesting because there's so many things that you do want to do, but there's definitely not time for it all at once. Yeah, and I, I guess I particularly struggle with that because I have um, FOMO. <laughs> Fear of missing out. <laughs> right. <laughs> and do you mean that in all aspects like you were talking about, or are there some, do you mean like in your career or in service and home life? I guess all of those would be applicable. Yeah, I think pretty much all of those. I It, it takes a lot of effort for me to focus on, uh, and prioritize one thing and not take advantage. You know, there always are unexpected opportunities that come up. And so just trying to make decisions about what really should be taken advantage of because it's a really good opportunity, although not what you had planned to do and what you need to just make sure you're staying focused, how you how you just make those decisions. Right. Is, are there any ways that helped you make those decisions? Did you sit down and make a list of priorities or just talking to different people or was it sure if there's anything in particular that that helped you make some of those decisions? It helps me to discuss with different people and get some input and that helped in terms of prioritizing and maybe after that that making a list and figuring out what was important or not. You know and sometimes you just have to like go for it. That's true. You might discover, you know, I'm I'm way over and this is not working. And I guess one of the things, even when I was at the very, very beginning trying to decide which direction to go professionally, it's not, if you think of it, 
oh, I'm going to make this decision and and it's going to put me on this path and I'm going to have to be on that path forever. Actually, you know, you might start in a particular direction and then discover that that's not really the way you want to go and you change directions and you're not stuck in something for life if it doesn't work out. And that sometimes helps in deciding whether or not to go one way or another. I think that's a really good point because I think a lot of times we have this picture in our head of if I make this decision, then this is going to happen. If I make this decision, this is going to happen. And usually neither one of those end up actually happening when you make that decision. It's just kind of this vision that you have in your head that isn't necessarily the way things are going to go. Um, So from the other perspective of being a good mentor, I know that you've said when you're looking for a mentor, it's important to um, look for someone who has the ability to care and good communication. Do you have any tips on uh, other tips, I guess, on being a good mentor and learning how to have the awareness of what is best for the person that you're mentoring? Well, I think a, a good mentor takes that role Um, seriously, and they feel invested in whether the mentee is successful or not. I think that's important. So that means that it's somebody who needs to have a good knowledge base, but also needs to be somewhat compassionate and understanding. And being a a good teacher, good trainer that can communicate well is really important. I would say those are sort of some of the most important attributes. Do you think that those skills came naturally for you or does it, is it something that takes practice? I guess it's it being important to take the time to think about how you're mentoring and, and ways for improvement. I, I, I feel like it has taken time for me. I think I had some very good role models along the way. And I think for me, it was more a time issue than anything else. I just didn't feel like I had Early on, I didn't feel like I had time to invest in mentoring other people or that I really needed to focus on just one or two people and not a whole lot of different people. Later on, and as my own responsibilities changed, I one of the things I really like about being at this stage in my career is that I, can, I really can focus on mentorship and is something that I really enjoy and hope to continue to be able to do it for a while. Yeah, that's really nice. And recently I was talking to somebody about mentorship and they had been asked some very difficult questions like when do you know you've overloaded your mentee or how do you know when to give them advice to completely steer them in the correct direction or whether to just kind of nudge them in the right direction. And it was hard because he said, you know, everybody is so different. And so it's really depends on who you're mentoring. And I didn't know if you had any additional advice for that, or if you've ever had a time when you maybe struggled to know where your mentee was at, or like you were surprised by their reaction to something that you maybe not had predicted. I think that people are so different. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't think that there is a generalized way to say how you would know. I think the communication is really, really key. And there's just some people that are better communicators than others. If communication is really difficult, then you're more likely to end up in the situations you're describing where you're just, you're surprised at 
what happens or you weren't aware that they really weren't where you thought they would be. It makes me think of one example. This was a long time ago when I was uh, in a basically a postdoc situation and we had a visiting scientist who was um, from another country and I was responsible for getting that person to a certain level and that person kept telling me that they understood all this stuff and down the road it became obvious that they were saying yes and they really didn't understand at all. So that's sort of a uh, extreme example, I guess, of if I had been able to communicate with that person in their own language, I probably would have done a lot better. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And some of the big themes I've gotten out of this are, are having good communication with your mentor and making sure that you have mentors for different areas. And I, I wasn't sure if there's anything else you want to add in terms of mentorship. I don't think so. I want to say again to you how much I appreciate your willingness to step up into these kinds of activities, I think, are so critical and important for ISB. I just think it's wonderful. I'm so excited about that. Oh, thank you. And I hope that you will also be mentoring some of your fellow students that are coming up through similar situations as, as what you have been and that we can really pay this forward in a really positive way. Yeah, I agree, and I hope so, too. And I've been receiving a lot of mentorship through this, but I'm, I'm definitely looking forward at paying it forward in the future. What are you most excited for in the future of biomechanics? I guess having it be more, having biomechanics in general be more pervasive than it has been in the past. I think more people have actually heard of it now. Yeah, maybe even have an idea of what it means, <laughs> which is, is huge compared to the past. Um, so I'm excited about that. And I think that biomechanics is an, is an area that is really conducive to interdisciplinary research. And that interdisciplinary aspect is really critical for any research that is going to be meaningful and effective. So I'm excited about that and and also excited about things that biomechanics work that is going on in so many different areas now uh, which I think is also growing so I'm, I'm really excited to see that as well yeah that that is really exciting did you have interdisciplinary work with your research at the University of Maryland Oh, definitely. And honestly, I think all of the research that I have done over the years has all been interdisciplinary, involving, in my case anyway, involving clinical expertise as well as engineering expertise and oftentimes statistics expertise and a lot of a really good interdisciplinary team of people that are working on the, the same problem. My last question has to do with a research fail or a time that you maybe made a, an error that you weren't expecting to in research and what you learned from that. Okay, so that's a really hard one for me. <laughs> there are so many challenges along the way. And which ones would I call a fail? I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I thought, yeah, I said earlier you know, that I had a little, I was struggling with that. <laughs> yeah. I've had a lot of challenges and probably some of them that have been challenging have been around perhaps people that were part of the research team you know and and thinking that something was getting done in a particular way 
and then you know finding out that that wasn't necessarily what was happening or thinking that uh, different people were taking care of different aspects and, and then finding out that either it wasn't being done or it wasn't being done the way you thought it should be done. So, having, you know, again, getting back to the communication and having the regular communication and being sure everybody's on the same page is really critical. Well, thank you for sharing that with us and also for taking the time to share your experiences with mentorship. I'm excited to share it with other people in the community. I know I have learned a lot from this interview and, and hopefully other people will too. Well, thank you, Melissa, and I'll look forward to seeing you in Calgary. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. There is a great resource through the International Society of Biomechanics for student members to be matched up with a mentor. And our website actually provides a list of available mentors, their research areas, and their location. And these are professors who have volunteered to be a mentor and are happy to hear from students wanting membership in some area. And it may seem intimidating, as we talked about with Mary, but really don't hesitate to reach out to researchers at conferences to talk um, or just send an email to anyone, no matter their location. If you're interested in what they're doing or think that they might be a valuable resource to you, feel free to send them an email and reach out to them. And Mary suggested an informational interview. So Hannah and I are going to give some pointers on that in a bit. But for now, we have some research fails. Ross, would you like to start us off with your research fail? Sure, sure. I've never been on radio before, so I'm Don't probably going to add. A, I'm going to add another fail, probably. This to is my live, list. so you should be nervous. <laughs> oh, this is live. Oh, We're God. not going to edit your parts out. Oh, okay. Oh, God. Well, I do have many research fails. One in particular comes to mind, though. So, when I first started my PhD, I was introduced to the world of OpenSim and using that for my research. And so I got started with that, started inputting my data and processing all my scripts as you do. And every time I uploaded it, I couldn't see my model. There was just a blank space of nothingness. (laughs) And so I'm showing other people in the lab and they're sort of pretty dumbfounded by what's going on. And after a few days of zooming in, continuously for two days just straight, straight <laughs> just scrolling <laughs> like leave your computer. rsi in my finger i finally saw this faint speck in the distance like a star in the sky wow. and i realized that i hadn't converted my raw data files from millimeters to meters oh. so my model was literally a thousand meters from the axis, like, origin of the axis. So you scrolled a thousand meters? (laughs) I was zooming out and zooming out, and, yeah. So then that was the first part, and then I actually realised that my model was sideways, which I thought was fine. I just had to rotate the screen. Yeah. And he looked like he was cycling. So I presented some data on the joint moments there, and it didn't quite seem right, and I realised that having him in the wrong axis meant that gravity was actually acting sideways so there was no gravity horizontal cycling there was horizontal gravity yeah which like does when you lay on your side and yeah. cycle yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's, and like your your feet get like pulled side to side yeah it's a, <laughs> it would be very weird so that is that would be my research fail well that's awesome thanks mm. for sharing that with us 
No problem. I actually have a continuation of my uh, past fail, and this isn't research heavy again, but when I went to go buy my desk at Ikea and I lost the department card, and so eventually I built this desk, and my advisors had not seen my desk before, but he came into the research lab I guess a couple weeks ago when I wasn't there. And you can tell that it doesn't fit in, okay? I'll give him that. The other desks are shaped like a bean and light brown, and mine is black and bigger and than the other desks. four stories high. <laughs> it's very tall. <laughs> and apparently he walked in and was just kind of dumbfounded at this giant desk that did not belong in the research lab. And then my lab mates told him that that was the desk that I bought and I I guess he wasn't really happy about that. And another fail <laughs> that happened today which I'm pretty sad about is our research lab is connected to the gym um, and there's a glass wall between us but there's blinds so you can't see the other side but from our side I decided to start hanging up paintings facing the gym to like decorate the gym. I thought that would be nice because somebody's doing a squat you know and they're good biomechanics form and looking over, and then you see some grapes on a vine in front of the sunset. I felt like that would be a nice thing to see while you're working out. It was beautiful. Uh, thank you. But then today, I was kindly told that i um, no longer allowed to decorate the gym walls. So that was sad. I and I'll be selling my painting, so if anyone wants to buy them. I think she just wants <laughs> your painting for herself. Maybe. I think that's why she told yeah. yeah. Okay, that could be it. That makes sense. That's pretty much the only thing I can the think of thing. that makes it's sense. <laughs> Maybe you just went with the wrong sort of uh, area. Maybe you needed more motivational quotes so people could oh, just get in the zone, you know. Yeah. Or like yeah, you you were like, taking you them, really want something relaxed. You, yeah, you were taking them off into the sunset. And, like, <laughs> he said it was off the, the right vibe. Yeah. As they're trying to True. do like a maximum squat. I could have wrote like tips, good yeah. biomechanics form tips. Yeah. Yeah, what is it? Like knees some force behind feet curves. and squatting. Oh, force velocity curves of your muscles. I'm <laughs> sure people at the gym would love to read that. Just, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Period. End of sentence. Yeah. Okay, Hannah, do you have any fails that you would like to share? Oh, I had a similar problem in that. I was also running a simulation, and I thought about converting the, the normal unit the simulation uses are SI, so meters, kilograms, etc. And so... I was inputting something that was in centimeters, and instead of dividing by 100 to convert to meters, I multiplied by 100. And so, like, my simulation was not converging, and it was like, will not converge. And, like, I was like, why? And the numbers were getting, like, really big, and I was like, how is this happening? And I checked all my equations, and then it turns out I just had the wrong conversion factor. Oh, that I feel, feel your pain. So that didn't work. But then I figured it out. So, some tips. Tips for an informational interview. The number one tip, Hannah, what I do you say, think would be the, the best thing that somebody should do if they're getting ready for it? I must say, yeah, just, like, don't be too afraid. Just, like, think about this. Some th something that someone once told me about informational interviews is, like, you're really just trying to get directions from someone. Like, think of when someone walks up to you on the street and they're asking for directions to a place. Do you feel because you give them the correct directions, you owe them something? And do you feel bad afterwards? Like, after you give them directions, are you like, oh, that was so annoying. Like, I didn't want to give directions. Or do you feel really good because you just help someone out? You know, yeah, you gave that them information one. that you didn't have. Exactly. That they didn't have, rather. Yeah. That one? Yeah, Ross is, we got a We voted. One. Okay. Majority. Yeah, so I think that thinking about that was the best advice to think about an informational interview 
for me was just think about it like you're asking for directions and that really makes it easy to not be afraid and just go into it open and, and yeah i think that's a really good point you should have told me that yesterday before my presentation oh you you were fine you were great yeah in the beginning was really awesome yeah i like the i like uh, the, the intro was the like, fun and lighthearted, and it really sent a good tone into the presentation yeah. we should do that mm. even at conferences i feel like yeah you Talk know just take just 30 seconds to just drop a line yeah exactly. a joke a fun tip a fun story fact. Yeah. i think i naturally always try and do that at the start of presentations because i used to work in a bike shop and one of the mm. first things they teach you in sales is to build rapport like it's the first step yeah. is when you meet someone yeah. you try to build rapport so i think i inherently do it with presentations i try and think well i'll try and show them that i'm like a normal person before i get into it that's a good thing to do definitely mm. I did take my qualifying exam last week, and I told Scott that if I failed, I was just going to go into stand-up comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and I said I was just going to use quals as an excuse to practice. And he said that would be cool because he doesn't know any stand-up comedians. <laughs> yeah, Melissa passed her quals. Yeah. It's true. But it's kind of weird now going back into lab. At the end of quals, one of the professors was like, are you going to go back into lab now? And I was like, no, I have a whole bottle of wine in my backpack and I'm going to go outside and drink it. <laughs> and then he was like, okay, you'll go back into lab tomorrow. And I was like, yeah, good news, I get to keep doing my PhD. Bad news, I have to keep doing my PhD. <laughs> but no one laughed. <laughs> and I felt so bad. I was like, okay, thank you. Just kidding. Thanks for passing me. And now my, um, now my like, backup plan is yeah, dead. <laughs> they were like, we retract. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was also looking up some other tips and some good ones that I thought were to do your research beforehand and maybe write down a few key points about their research or their recent work that you found interesting and that you might want to bring up. Um, and to also just provide a short background of yourself. So just a 30 second, you know, who you are and what you do and why you wanted to talk to them because you want to make sure that the interview stays about them and making sure that you can get the most out of the interview and they're enjoying it themselves. And you can also prepare questions in advance. So we'll give some examples of questions that you might want to prepare for your informational interview. So the first one or one of them might be, how did you get a start in this field? Another one might be, what projects are they working on right now? And another, maybe what's your opinion on some exciting new development in the field or in their lab, in their research? I like when it can get a little bit personal, too. So maybe asking, what do you wish you would have done differently when you were a PhD student or choosing a postdoc, beginning your first faculty position? Something that gives a little bit more insight into their life and, and their story. People love to talk about themselves. So if you can get anything about their personal experience, that to just get started on that track and then get them talking, you don't even have to ask any more questions and you'll have a lot more insight than the questions that you had prepared, you'll get a lot more out of just them talking to you. Yeah. I like this one, the open-ended type question, like what advice would you give someone in my position? Leave the floor to them to, mm -hmm. to really open up and answer that. Yeah, it's like not making it too specific for a certain 
topic. It kind of leaves it open for them. And then finally, this one I like it to sort of close up the interview is to always remember that you're keeping the ball rolling. You had this awesome informational interview, but like, what's the next step? And the next step is asking this awesome person if there's anyone else that they would recommend you speak with. Now that they know your interest, they can provide some expert advice on who to go to next. Awesome. And always make sure to follow it up with gratitude, maybe a thank you note or an email just to thank them for their time and speaking with you. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of Boom. It's been great talking to Mary Rogers and learning about mentorship, informational interviews, and just getting yourself out there. And really, biomechanics and research is just about building your network and doing great work. So try to get out there and just talk to some people. And we look forward to hearing from you, too. And as usual, you can follow us on Twitter at IS Biomechanics and find us on Facebook at the International Society of Biomechanics. And I wanted to give an extra thank you to Ross for being on the show with us today. Thank you for mm. having me. Amazing experience. Biomechanics, biomechanics all of our, our minds. minds. Boom. I think I just said that Boom. with an American accent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How is it? Biomechanics off our minds.